0: It's Friday, 8th of September, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, UK versus Germany in the economy stakes. Who's ahead, who's behind, and does it even matter? But first, I'm joined again by Neil Shearing, our group chief economist, who's been scrambling with the team this past week to get our big report on AI ready for prime time. Hi there, Neil. Hi, David. Uh, we'll get on to our spotlight report in a bit. I think we need to start, though, with the energy market, don't we? We've got oil prices at their highest level in nearly a year. European gas prices surging on industrial action, and we're heading towards winter. We've already raised some of our EM inflation forecast. Do we need to be revisiting our DM inflation assumptions amid all of this as well? Yes, the very last thing that central bankers want to
1: see right now is an increase in global energy prices, but that's what's happened over the past week, as you say, a couple of things going on. One is an extension of the OPEC plus production cuts on the oil side, but then, as you say, industrial action in Australia pushing up global natural gas prices too. Now, what does that mean for inflation is the key question. It's clearly only one week's move, but there has been a drift up in oil prices in particular over the past couple of months. And If you want a rough rule of thumb, it's that about a $10 rise in the price of oil adds about something like 0.2 percentage points to headline inflation. So if you think the crude oil prices have increased by about $20 a barrel since the lows reached in the summer, that adds something like 0.4 percentage points to, to headline inflation. So meaningful jump in in energy prices that if sustained will will make it more difficult to bring down headline rates of inflation in in advanced economies. Of course, what central banks really care about is core inflation. And we'll get more news on that from the US in the coming week. But I suspect that core inflation is going to continue to drift down across advanced economies over the, over the next six months or so.
0: Let's stay on that US inflation release. As you say, it's going to be the big market focus for the coming week, US August CPI on Wednesday. What's our expectation there? Anything in that report you think is going to worry the Fed? Well, The headline rate is going to
1: jump, I think. We know that because of what's happened to gasoline prices, petrol prices in the US. So we've got a rise in CPI of about 0.6% month-on-month, which will push up the year-on-year rate from about 3.2% to 3.7% year-on-year. So that will be of concern to to policymakers. But set against that, as I say, what really matters is the core inflation rates. And on that front, I suspect policymakers will get more good news. We've penciled in another 0.2% month-on-month increase in core CPI, which will bring the core year-on-year rate down from 4.7% year-on-year to, to 4.3%. So worrying news on the headline rates, but it's the core that matters. And I think on that front, we get better news.
0: Let's move away from inflation, shall we, and turn to the bigger picture. Curious to see in the last week that Jensen Huang, the the CEO of NVIDIA, has been in India, in Delhi, meeting with Narendra Modi. Obviously, NVIDIA is the market's poster child for all things AI at the moment. That's the subject of our Spotlight Report coming on September 26th. Talk about what Huang's visit suggests about India and and AI. It's interesting, isn't it? India is clearly becoming a destination for the
1: type of tech FDI that used to go into China. So we've seen, haven't we, Apple shift Production of of some of its products from China to India. And now we have these links with Nvidia, too. I think one of the key messages that's come out of our spotlight work, though, is that there are several factors that will determine the economic outcomes from the AI revolution across different economies. One is the ability to innovate the technology, but just as important is the ability to diffuse that technology through economies and to adapt to the challenges that it presents. And I think on those fronts, India may struggle. Also, it has a large business outsourcing sector that is potentially under threat from AI. So good news on the tech FDI front for India, but I think there there are other challenges coming from AI, in particular the challenge to its outsourcing sector. And for that reason, we've produced what we've called our AI Economic Impact Index, which ranks countries according to their ability to reap benefits from, from AI. And on that measure, India ranks relatively low because of this threat to the outsourcing sector. So India will still be one of the fastest growing emerging economies over the next couple of decades. But whereas AI will be a big boost, I think, to economies like the US, actually it might be more of a headwind than a boost to economies like India over the next decade or so.
0: Let's stay on technology and geoeconomics Because this all relates to news about Huawei's Mate 60 Pro in a way, doesn't it? This is Huawei's new flagship phone. It was launched fairly quietly in recent weeks, but there was a big gasp from the crowd nonetheless because its chip does appear to be the product of a workaround of US export controls on semiconductor technology. What's all the fuss about here and what does it mean in terms of US-China competition? Yes, so this is all about the use of
1: advanced chips. Now, it used to be the case that there were two companies in the world that produced the most advanced chips, uh, TSMC, the the Taiwanese firm, and, and Samsung. Now, SMIC, a Chinese firm, now appears to also be able to produce these chips, and they've gone into the latest Huawei phone. Now, as you say, that is interesting because of export controls on the technology, and it appears to be the case that China's managed to either circumvent those or replicate the technology itself. Now, actually, when our China team dug into this, what they found was that these chips made by SMIC, actually they were produced by what's called a DUV machine, kind of old technology. The most advanced machines that are now being used by TSMC and Samsung, so-called EUV machines, much lower cost of production and a much greater potential in terms of what they can do. And those are subject now to export controls, not just from the, the US, but also from Japan, Netherlands and other major producers. So it might be the case that, yes, this is a big breakthrough and a major achievement for China, but it's using, well, it's already outdated technology. And the new technology that uh, TSMC and others are using is now subject to export controls that I think might make it more difficult for China to kind of catch up to that latest technology. Uh, So they might already be approaching the limits of, of what they're able to do on this front.
0: So the the, the technological fault lines uh, that we describe in our work on on global economic fracturing or fragmentation, those are still very much in place here.
1: Absolutely. And it's certainly too early to conclude as some have that these US export controls have either been ineffective or have backfired. It's been a year since we published our major report on fracturing. And there's a page on our website that clients can visit where we've been updating all of our analysis in response to to events over the past 12 months or so. I think what's really interesting, as you say, though, know, is that there's now this new fault line in the fracturing to do with AI and the development of advanced technology around that. Uh, so what we're seeing, I think one of the big themes of the last year has been that fracturing It's not only entered the mainstream as an idea, but the fault lines of fracturing have also expanded. It's not just about trade anymore. It's also much more about technology. We've had various moves on on financial fronts and capital flows fronts too. So the breadth and scope of fracturing is expanding.
0: That was Neil Shearing on what the latest smartphone on the market says about a fragmenting global economy. I'll link to the fracturing work on the podcast page, along with our analysis of the geoeconomics around what's powering the Mate 60 Pro. As I mentioned, the AI Spotlight Report will be released on Tuesday, September 26th. There are in-person events being organized around that in North America, Asia, and in London, so check those out. We'll also have drop-ins, our short-form online briefings, on October 5th about AI's macro and market effects. Details coming soon. On the energy and inflation question, our Commodities and Europe teams held a drop-in this past week about European gas demand heading into winter. Watch that recording if you didn't get the live session. I'll post it on the page. We have another drop-in this coming Wednesday all about Egypt and what's happening with its deal with the IMF. Uh, This is a big EM flashpoint. You'll want to tune in. Again, registration on site. Now, the big UK macro news of recent days has been the sharp upward revision of the economy size by the official stats office. Turns out the UK economy was 0.6% above its pre-pandemic level at the end of 2021 versus the 1.2% below the level that was previously thought. Ruth Gregory, our deputy chief UK economist, explained what all of this meant in a recent analysis. But one of the key takeaways is that the UK is no longer the worst performing G7 economy coming out of the pandemic pandemic. That honour now goes to Germany. But how does any of this fundamentally change the outlook for these two economies? To find out, I spoke earlier in the week to Andrew Kenningham, who's our Chief Europe Economist, and to Chief UK Economist Paul Dales. And I started by asking Paul what the upgrade says in terms of our thinking about the state of the UK
2: economy. Not as bad as we thought. I mean, the ONS essentially revised the level of GDP in real terms at the end of 2021, up by a whopping 1.7%, which is equivalent to the ONS sticking its hands down the back of the sofa and coming up with 10 billion pounds. So it's really big, but when it comes to what it means for the future, I think it all depends on how much of the revision is due to an increase in our understanding of the amount of supply, capacity and demand. And given that we know that inflation has been really strong and wage growth has been really strong, our take is that actually most of the up provision is due to demand being stronger than we thought. So that doesn't really mean that we can telescope this into the future and conclude that the UK economy is going to grow at a faster rate in every future year. I think it really just means that there was this period where demand was in excess of supply by even more than we thought. Uh, But the problems that you've written extensively
0: about in the UK economy, I mean, this revision doesn't remove those problems, does it? I
2: mean, talk about what lies ahead in terms of uh, the UK near and, and longer term growth outlook. No, I think that's exactly right. The UK essentially has a problem where its supply capacity is too low and has been lowered since the pandemic. The best example is in the labour market, where the number of people available to work or willing to work is still lower than before the pandemic. And this just is a reduction in the supply of labour. And that is constraining the long-term potential growth rate of the UK. And because it's been driven by what we perceive to be long-term issues, such as the number of people saying they are long-term sick, it's unlikely to be reversed soon. At the same time, the UK has had a productivity problem since the global financial crisis and its productivity growth has just been very, very weak. Now, there may be reasons for this to improve some way in the future, but I don't think we can conclude that as a result of the economy being slightly bigger than it was or than we thought it was due to the ONS revisions, that it's suddenly going to be a situation where productivity growth is much faster over the next few years.
0: Andrew, let's, let's turn to you. Germany now at the, at the back of the G7 pack. And I suppose that matters in as much as it, its headline fodder in a country already wringing its hands over this idea that things have gone so very wrong for its economy. I noticed Dr. Nagel from the Bundesbank has been denying that Germany is again the sick man of Europe. Does he protest too much? I mean, to what extent are we seeing a cyclical downturn versus something that, that that runs much deeper?
3: Well, I guess as far as Mr. Nagel's concerned, you know, he would say that, wouldn't he? I mean, he is the head of the central bank, so he's not exactly going to come out and admit how bad the situation is. I think the reality is it's a mix of cyclical and structural problems. Cycle is a funny word at the moment because we're coming out of this pandemic and it's, all sorts of things are moving around. But Clearly, some of the problems are to do with the impact of higher energy prices and uh, higher interest rates, and those are not going to last too long. And then Germany doesn't have much of a tourism industry, although I am going on holiday there myself in a few weeks' time, and therefore it's not benefiting as much as other countries from the rebound that we've seen in that sector. So there are some cyclical things at work, but I think what's really creating a lot of hand-wringing in Germany among politicians and business people alike is the sense that the business model is out of date and that they are going to struggle in what you'd call a structural sense. They've been over-reliant on cheap energy from Russia. They've been over-reliant on China as an export market and their, their industrial sector, particularly the auto sector, is an analog one in a digital world and they're not necessarily going to compete well in the world of EVs. So there are definitely some structural issues at play. And yes, they're now at the bottom of the league table, having overtaken the UK, which I was able to say was the one reason why you couldn't say that Germany was the single sick man of Europe. But that's no longer true due to the revisions Paul's been talking about. Well, we will have to check the data to see what your holiday spending impact is
0: on on the economic turnaround. What kind of recovery are we looking at then, given these structural issues that you talk about, but also I suppose the better word would be temporary factors that you've described there?
3: So we're in the process of updating our forecasts. We'll be publishing new ones in about two or three weeks' time. I mean, currently we have contraction in Q3 and Q4, the economy actually flatlined in Q2. So there were two successive quarters of contraction, then flat, then we're expecting two more contractions and then a recovery next year. But the recovery we think will be very slow. So the question then about the structural issue is whether the trend growth rate is now going to be even lower than it was before the pandemic. And I think that is looking very possible. We've had this big and surprisingly positive upgrade from the ONS. Could we expect a similar
0: upgrade to German GDP numbers?
3: Well, never say never. There have been many revisions to the German data already. They they revise them every quarter, and then once a year they revise them over a longer period. Now, actually, in Q2 this year, there were substantial upward revisions to the 2021 data, so there could be more revisions to come. There are a bunch of rules about exactly when and how they can announce big revisions due to the methodological changes and things at the European level. And, I, and because of those, I think it's unlikely that they'll make a really big change until 2024, because those sorts of things are supposed to happen on a five-year cycle. But, you know, there could well be a change. And to be honest, the scale of these revisions does make rather a mockery of a lot of the commentary that many people, including ourselves, are guilty of, you know, looking at the details of these numbers. The average absolute revision to German GDP on a quarterly basis has been 0.5% over the period since 2019. So the, the, the revisions are normally are pretty large, it's just they don't always normally go in the same direction in the way they did with the UK this time, I think. So Andrew described a fairly shallow
0: recovery. Paul, is that a similar story
3: for the UK?
2: In the next couple of years, I think the UK is going to be in a very similar situation to Germany. Uh, For example, um, because of the drag from higher interest rates, we think there'll be a, a recession, a relatively mild one. We do think there is some scope for the economy to rebound from that, perhaps a bit faster than Germany. If you put Brexit aside, then I don't think it's got quite the same handbrakes on it over the next couple of years. Further ahead, actually, is probably really interesting because we are coming around to the conclusion that the UK's long experience of really poor productivity growth may not be sustained in the 2030s. And that's something we're going to be discussing in more detail and explaining in our our spotlight series, which is due to be released soon. But the message really is that when it comes to the long term out of the UK economy, we're a bit more optimistic than most forecasters, actually, and we'd probably say that the outlook for the UK is is a bit better than the outlook for Germany.
0: Yeah, that, that report that you mentioned does have a lot to say about the productivity growth outlooks. And it, there are very, very striking conclusions that it makes about UK versus German productivity growth looking looking much further out. Um, Andrew, if I could, I I'd... We're going to have to wrap up, but I can't let you go without asking about the ECB. That's this coming Thursday.
3: Give us your take on what we think we're going to hear from Madame Lagarde and company. Well, at the last ECB meeting, Christine Lagarde quoted an Oasis album and said there was definitely maybe going to be another rate hike in September. And since then, we've not really seen any data that would shift the dial dramatically in one direction or another inflation has been a little bit higher than expected but some labor market data have improved a bit so it really is in in the balance we are forecasting another 25 basis points hike which would bring rates to four percent at next thursday's meeting but you know we certainly wouldn't be surprised if they called it a day and paused where they are at 3.75 but either way, we think it will be a long time before they begin to cut interest rates. We're not forecasting a cut until September 2024. And I think that's kind of where the focus is going to be now is where, when, when the cycle will turn.
0: That was Andrew Kenningham and Paul Dales on the German and UK economic outlooks. I'll post Ruth Gregory's analysis on the podcast page, along with Andrew's insight into what the ECB is likely to decide at its meeting this coming Thursday. He'll also be back on the podcast in the coming weeks to discuss more about the German economy, and maybe he'll share some stories from his holiday there. But that's it for this week. As always, the analysis and events reference can be found on the podcast page. And for CE Advanced clients, remember you get access to all our inside, all our events, and all our data. And if you're not signed up to CE Advanced, get in touch, and we'll introduce you to its many benefits. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.